So hi everyone, it's Wake Up Call podcast again. So we wanted to do a quick follow-up episode because Roe versus Wade was just overturned a couple of days ago. And uh, I have been seeing so much misinformation and overly emotional language on the topic on social media, which I feel like fails to explain the whole point of Roe versus Wade and its implications after it's been overturned. So that's our aim today. Yeah, and we have on with us um, Robert Moroni to sort of explain the legal aspect, uh, which both me and Milda are not super familiar with. Um, so, Rob, do you want to just introduce yourself and uh, tell us who you are? Uh, yeah, sure. So, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, my name is Rob Moroni. I'm uh, now year two, going into year two student at McGill University. And uh, I'm very passionate about law and uh, planning on studying it in the Future. So there's a massive misconception with Roe, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade uh, and Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health in general. Uh, it's not so much a the court essentially handed down a decision not so much on abortion in general. Of course, it pertains abortion, but more about the role of the Supreme Court and the judiciary in making decisions going forward. So what do I mean by that? Essentially, the Supreme Court in 1973 decided that Roe v. Wade would be upheld uh, given two clauses, uh, the Equal Protection Clause, which uh, prohibits uh, the deprivation of life, liberty, and property by government, and by, the equal, and by the Privacy Clause, which protects individuals against unreasonable searches and seizures. The court today, uh, the court a week ago, I guess, essentially said that the Supreme Court had erred back then because abortion was not mentioned at the time or at any point since that writing in the Constitution. And if it's not mentioned, then it's not guaranteed by the Constitution. The court also said that because of this, if the judiciary were to make a decision either way, so i.e. upholding abortion or restricting abortion, it would be making a policy decision a decision that is best led by the legislative, which is made up of elected officials, as these nine are unelected officials. In turn, the court is essentially saying that we erred and we return the decision to the legislative. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, Vishwa, please. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, in, your, in our messages going back and forth, Rob, you sort of explained that there was two fundamental different schools of thought when looking at the role of the court. Do you want to explain what those school, two uh, schools of thought are and how they apply to this particular overturning? Yes, of course. So people have a conception that there's two types of judges, conservative and liberal judges, and that's actually not the case. There's two types of schools of thought in judging, and they can lead to very different outcomes. So on one hand, you have living constitutionalists, which are judges that apply the spirit of the Constitution. So those are judges that say that even though something wasn't written in the Constitution when the amendment was last adopted uh, explicitly, we can apply current day values, i.e. the spirit, that's what they call it, the spirit of the Constitution to current day and apply to current day practices. On the other hand, you have textualists. Textualists apply the uh, constitution as directly written and if a case or something is not mentioned in the constitution then clearly it is not there and therefore they won't uh, make that law 
So a good way to think about this is the um, right to, to marriage. Uh, the Constitution, uh, textualists argue that the Constitution does not mention a, a right to gay marriage explicitly, but living constitutionalists argue that uh, at the time, that isn't because they didn't want it uh, in the Constitution, but because they hadn't thought of gay marriage in the way that we could consider it now. So if we apply it to current day practices, then uh, we can essentially legalize gay marriage. So the school of thought with living constitutionalists is very popular amongst uh, Democrats in the United States because it basically leads to cases that legalize assisted suicide, that legalizes gay marriage, et cetera, et cetera. And in the United States, textualists are very uh, are endorsed by Democrat uh, by Republicans and conservatives because it leads to outcomes that they tend to favor, i.e., uh, banning assisted suicide, banning abor abortion, banning um, gay marriage. Now, the judges that are on the Supreme Court right now are very textualist, i.e., they look at the way that the Supreme that the Constitution uh, writes on abortion, and they say that there is no mention of abortion. Uh, in the Constitution. They look at the two clauses that were passed in 1973 in the Roe v. Wade case, and they say, well, the Equal Protection Clause does not uphold it because it prevents the deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due uh, process. So this is called the Due Process Clause. It's found in the 14th Amendment. And the Due Process Clause essentially says that government can deprive life, liberty, and the pursuit of happy uh, and property but it must undergo something called due process, i.e. textualists say that that essentially means you dot the I's and cross the T's when you go through something. And in terms of the privacy clause, textualists also say that it doesn't uphold abortion because it, protects, it just protects individuals against unreasonable searches and seizures, nothing else. And abortion, they say, is far removed from searches and seizures. Okay, that's really interesting, actually. Thanks for explaining that. But now, to get a bit back more on the actual Roe versus Wade, could you explain a bit more, like, what did Roe versus Wade exactly protect in all of the states? And, like, what is lost now? Like, did Roe versus Wade not allow states to have any restrictions on abortions when it was actually in place? Yes, essentially, Roe uh, prevented states from implying their own restrictions on abortion and essentially kind of federalizing it. Now, today's decision uh, doesn't necessarily, and Brett Kavanaugh in his own concurrence, which a concurrence is essentially when you agree with the outcome of the Supreme Court, but you perhaps want to have a say, a, your own say, or perhaps um, have a different opinion from the majority opinion on the court, says in his concurrence that, quote, to be clear then, the court's decision today does not outlaw abortion throughout the United States, end quote. Essentially, what today's opinion does is it's Mississippi, in its uh, in Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health, decided that um, they wanted to ban abortion after 16 weeks unless a woman's life was being threatened. So they wanted to put their own kind of variation on allowing abortion. And Mississippi's attorney general essentially said, well, if you're going to do that, then you might as well completely overturn Roe v. Wade. And what this decision does is it doesn't ban or uh, restrict what states can do when they decide to ban or not ban abortion. What it does is it ends kind of this federalization of abortion and allows states and their citizens 
so uh, to do whatever they feel is right. So it returns power to the citizens, essentially. So um, given this, given that Roe essentially, like you said, takes the power back to the state, is there any federal solution um, to protecting abortion? Like, what could the House of Representatives and the Senate or even the president, like, sign an executive order or pass legislation in order to stop states from infringing upon, you know, abortion rights or banning abortion um, or whatnot? Uh, yes, of course. So that's part of also the answer that the, uh, the Supreme Court is outlining. So essentially, say, one, on one hand, the states can do we return the decision back to the states because it's states' rights. But if the citizens feel so strongly about this, they can always pass a law. The Constitution isn't rigid. We added the 14th Amendment, which added equal rights to uh, to, uh, to minorities such as African Americans after the civil rights uh, after the Civil War. So we can always make a change to the to the Constitution. All you have to do is patch it, pass something in the legislative that clearly in law legalizes abortion and if you have 60 or more senators i.e enough to break the filibuster then you could always pass this as a set of legislation and then the supreme court would happily adhere to this legislation and essentially this would federalize it but all the supreme court is saying is that you you can not federalize abortion in the way that it was done before i.e via the judiciary because that was an root that was essentially nine supreme court justices acting as a kind of gods because what you have is you have nine unelected officials who basically rule in one way or the other. Abortion is very is very contentious, they argue, and both sides think that they're wholly right. And so essentially what you do is you basically, if you were the Senate and you really wanted this passed, you would basically gather enough votes, put it into legislation, and then the Supreme Court would adhere to that. And like, what's your opinion on this whole situation? Well, uh, one's opinion really depends on what you think about the constitution and what rights it gives to the judiciary. Um, because on one hand, you would you could say that this is definitely a blow to millions of Americans who uh, want, and we would say deserve the right to an abortion. Um, but what one needs to be careful when they analyze this is the Supreme Court shouldn't be able to make decisions uh, for 330 million Americans in ways in which would overstep their, 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 their kind of scope. Because in Federalist 51, Alexander Hamilton clearly said that there was a separation of powers between uh, the executive, legislative, and judiciary. And the goal of the judiciary is to basically this is an this is a redefining of what the court's role is. The court is essentially saying, hey, we're not going to legislate anymore. We're not, we don't want to make decisions where it's clearly not written in the constitution. That's not saying that we don't support either position, but that just means that if it's not written there, we're not going to rule on it. Because we are nine officials who essentially can never be fired from our position. And any decision that we make upsets millions of Americans. So the better solution here is just to allow the legislature to make the decision. Because if Americans are happy with the decision, then they're gonna keep reelecting those officials. 
And if they are unhappy with the decision, then they're going to basically kick them out of office and put in new officials who will do what they want. And they think that that's the better solution than to have this sort of binding legislative decision, which no elected official can have a say. And um, I've seen a lot on social media about the precedent that the overturning of Rose sets for the potential in Clarence Thomas's decision, he wrote that um, there was potential uh, implications relating to the court's ruling on gay marriage, the court's ruling on contraception, and uh, and things like that. So, what do you think that that is? What does that mean for the future of gay marriage? Is this just the first in a series of rulings by the federal court? Well, it could be because the Supreme Court in Obergefell. Uh, which is the gay marriage case that you reference, uh, Anton Scalia, who had, uh, was considered a line of the right, had said that, uh, and a line of textualism is prob- probably better said, uh, said that also this uh, abortion, uh, sorry, uh, gay marriage was also upheld through this uh, kind of liberty clause. And again, he says that it's, it's not there uh, in substantive due process. And so what he's saying it, it, in his dissent, he essentially said, yeah, we can overturn that. That's not in there. And I'm sure that if he was still alive, he would have loved to overturn that. Um, now, this Supreme Court is a little bit different because if you in the case, they make it quite clear that abortion is kind of there is something called uh, stare decisis, which is precedent. And essentially, the Supreme Court, even if they disagree with the precedent, will find it hard to overturn the precedent uh, unless there was something considered extremely wrong. So, for example, uh, the 1800s case of Plessy v. Ferguson, which was the separate but equal doctrine, which essentially uh, legalized segregation uh, in schools, was overturned by Brown versus the Board of Education. So that's an example of precedent being overturned. Now, uh, abortion, these uh, judges, these justices say that abortion is a, quote, special case uh, because it was even mentioned uh, by the a majority that decided Roe that it was a special case. And therefore, I mean, they directly quote Roe being a special case because it's to do with life or death, while gay marriage does not have to do with life or death. Um, so they think, so Neil Gorsuch, Samuel Alito, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch writing because they signed on to the Alito opinion that says that they will not overturn it. And then Brett Kavanaugh writing concurrently, so saying in his own words that he would not overturn uh, contra- the right to contraceptives or uh, gay marriage. So while Clarence Thomas, I'm sure probably Anton Scalia, if he would have still been alive, would have wanted to overturn that, I don't think that that's going to be overturned. Yeah, and, and talking more about the current laws, I've been seeing a lot on social media, especially people saying that right now in some states, the penalty for rape is smaller than the penalty for illegal abortion. Maybe you know something more about that. Uh, well, I can't talk so much in specifics, but I can say that it probably comes from a misunderstanding in terms of, well, it really depends on the state. If a state wants to put a harsher penalty for conducting an illegal abortion, that is a fine on the doctor uh, and the state's representative. So, the state's representatives can essentially decide what goes on. And basically what Americans are saying is, well, 
the those individuals don't represent us. But what the court is saying is, well, they actually do because you vote for them. So essentially, if you don't agree with a certain penalty, it's not that the court can, that a government can essentially like, let's say you have like Alabama, Alabama can't like pass a law and then the citizens are binded by it because worst case scenario, if the citizens say, well, we don't like this law, then essentially we can, or you can vote for have uh, elected, your elected officials overturn it. And what the court referenced is that it's not that women are without power because uh, in Mississippi, I think they cited a case where in the last election, 55% of voters were women. And Mississippi was the case that actually had brought forward a ban on abortion after 16 weeks. So clearly they say that women are well represented. So essentially it depends on the state. Uh, some states I'm sure could implement hard, harsher uh, penalties, but it's not that this, that this is unjust in the eyes of the citizens because the citizens voted for the elected officials. And I guess in two, three years, we will see if that clearly is unjust, we'll see a correction with a bunch of elected officials leaving office. So it seems like uh, a lot of uh, liberals' solution to this is telling the Democrats and Joe Biden to pack the Supreme Court, add extra justices. Do you think that's a good idea or um, a bad idea? Well, I think that I would go back to Federalist 51 that essentially says that, uh, you know, we should have the separation of powers. And if you were to pack the Supreme Court, uh, you would go against separation of powers. Essentially, packing the Supreme Court if you don't like a decision is a very scary precedent with very, very, very scary consequences. Because you might agree with the decision that is going on now, or you might think that certain seats are stolen. But imagine if you set the precedent, you had a few more judges, and then you're all fine. But then you have someone that like Trump that comes around, and this precedent's been set, set and then he disagrees with something fundamentally, such as, uh, let's say, the election. And basically what he could do is he could, because he, let's say he were to hypothetically have the Senate, and this is all hypotheticals, but if he were to have like a strong enough majority in the Senate that he could essentially confirm justice in a rush pack, he could essentially say, I don't agree with the election. And then he could pack the Supreme Court with a bunch of people that support his opinions. And then he could basically have all, you could have cases of election fraud and basically he could sustain himself in court. And any time, and even if it's not that big, let's say that not that scary, that's maybe the most extreme. Anytime that a Supreme Court justice uh, is indebted to a president, anytime that there's this kind of close relation, you basically break the separation of powers. And the separation of powers is a very real thing. It's a very real threat. And it's what the founders thought at any time. And I said the same thing with court limits, court limits. I read a study from Duke Law, which said that if you were to put court limits, uh, age limits, term limits on Supreme Court justice that given the cycle of presidents, you would have had Roe Ro overturned three times already. So wow. basically you speed up law. So essentially you can you can go through a cycle where you speed up law, you have a bunch of conservatives, you have a bunch of liberals and you have a bunch of conservatives in power and then they basically keep nominating judges that they agree with their opinion. And you would basically just have this constant influx, this constant flux of law. So I wouldn't change the separation of powers. I wouldn't tamper with the Supreme Court. I would just, if I was someone that disagreed with abortion, I personally uh, agree with abortion. But if, let's say if I were someone who uh, agreed to the right to abortion, I wouldn't be protesting outside of the judge's house or the uh, Supreme Court. I would be protesting outside of Congress and saying passes as a federal law. Yeah, that makes sense. 
yeah, thank you so much, Rob. Um, I think that your legal analysis extremely helpful, and uh, we hope to sh see you on the show in the future. No worries. Thank you so much for having me.